Welcome to the Big Green Politics Podcast. In a world where climate breakdown and environmental degradation are so urgent, does anything else take precedence over environmental action? Do we have time for women's rights, workers' rights, racial equality? This debate goes to the heart of green politics. It's a debate that rages within parties. But are these the right questions to ask? Maybe we need to be asking, what makes the environmental movement so unwelcoming for certain people, which weakens it? What's environmental racism? Why do far-right movements also tend to be climate change deniers? We explored these questions with Samir Jaraj. Samir works at the Race Equality Foundation in London and recently helped set up the Daikin Zeribe Fund to encourage and support black and minority ethnic candidates in the Green Party of England and Wales. So as you said, you work for the Race Equality Foundation. I think the general feeling is that racial equality is a slowly progressing project. Is that true? Um, And what's the overview of racial equality in the UK? So broadly, I agree with you that in the last few years, we've seen a small amount of progress in some areas, but significant reversal in, in others. There's been the impact of austerity, which has led to a lot of black minority ethnic organisations closing down. So historically, there was a network of what were termed race equality councils. These would both conduct casework, they would be like a sounding board for the public services, and they'd serve as an organising body. And those have largely collapsed as their funding has gone. Where things have got significantly worse is around how the hostile environment has impacted on race equality. A hostile environment to Certain categories of migrant will also mean a hostile environment to people who may look or sound like they are not British born, for example, challenges to people's right to access healthcare, as well as creating a kind of an environment where casual prejudice can flourish. And to some extent, that's, those concerns have been vindicated by what's happened to what are termed the Windrush generation. So migrants who came to the UK from the British Commonwealth and former colonies up into the early 70s, who have now been caught up in this vicious and brutal system that's been created to literally create a hostile environment for recent migrants without status or who have arrived and then lost status. So how, how is this hostile environment created? Essentially, it's through setting up a number of internal borders. So this includes, for example, challenging people's kind of right to free healthcare by asking for like idea hospitals depending on your status you might be charged for healthcare you'd be charged 150% of the actual cost of healthcare as well if they add on an extra like 50% to bring in money there was something in the news fairly recently around kind of um, how the home office make, tends to make money on on various kind of like like immigration application aspects that it's a profit-making element of the Home Office. Wow. There was also kind of stuff around restricting people's access to ID, so like driving licenses were like the classic one, bank account checks, so again like checking if someone had the right to remain in the UK and then freezing their bank accounts and such, and checking if 
people um, have the right to reside before they're allowed to rent housing as well. So, you know, it's a system that was explicitly designed to drive people underground more so than anything else. According to the British Social Attitudes Survey in 2003, 48% of Brits worried that an increase in the Muslim population would weaken Britain's national identity. And 10 years later, by 2013, that had risen to 62%, which is 14% rise in 10 years. That's clearly going backwards. So, And it means a huge bulk of the British population think that these people are different, threatening, at least threatening to their culture. How, how can we address this? So one of the driving factors behind that is inevitably the kind of British response to terrorism. And if you look in like 2003, before the 77 bombings in 2005, and the kind of like pre-concerns of people going into Syria and joining the Islamic State and such, what we've had in the intervening time is build up of anxieties around difference within the UK. We've seen that in, in both kind of rising amount of hate crime directed towards Muslim, towards black and white people in general, you know, towards uh, Jewish people as well. On some levels, there is more general anxiety around around difference, but Muslims in particular have been the specific focus of that, especially anxiety around Muslims being a growing community within the UK. People tend to overestimate the proportion of the population that are, are Muslims in the UK. It's still a very small minority, but there's a great mm. fear and anxiety that, you know, what helps address those kind of anxieties is fostering ways in which people come to know and understand each other through shared experiences. One of the ways which we've highlighted in my work at the Race Equality Foundation is that we run a like a parenting program. One of common but not universal experiences in life is the experience of being a parent. Most parents share common anxieties, common experiences common calls for their children and actually kind of bringing together a diverse set of parents from different backgrounds helps foster an understanding of people beyond shallow encounter relationship with with someone who might be a see on the street or someone like a neighbor that you might exchange like five words with coming to know people through shared experience it's a way of addressing that and so going on to a topic that i think is so interesting is the link between environmentalism and climate change and race. So could you tell me a bit more about that? There are lots of interesting links and ways that this come about, and that British environmentalism has its origins in the kind of British experience of, of colonialism. So, for example, there are, you know, there's some arguments around the, you know, kind of some, some of these like Victorian environmentalists kind of coming to understand the nature of climate and how how, for example, like deforestation will affect local climate, came about from chopping down large parts of countries that, and communities that Britain had occupied. So it's always had that kind of link to colonialism and the subjugation of indigenous people reflects the power dynamic of subjugating nature or wanting to subjugate nature. Mm. You know, we know that we exist in deeply unequal societies, both globally and within nation states. And so any impacts from, for example, climate change or other environmental catastrophe stresses will, by their nature, disproportionately impact on people of colour, the mm. same way they disproportionately impact countries in the global south as well, and that kind of international dynamic of global poverty and global inequality being key part of that. But, for example, you look at the experience of African-American communities in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and there's a, a great documentary about it called like when when the levees broke and there's uh in the kind of the historical memory of the community they remember a 
an earlier hurricane where the coastal defences and the African American side were blown to alleviate the kind of so they were flooded to save essentially the kind of like the richer and whiter bits of town and the poorer and blacker bits of town were kind of were sacrificed. You know, you look at kind of who couldn't flee, who had to live there, you then look at the kind of militarized and racialized response from the authorities. These were kind of survivors, these were a threat, they were going to be looters. All of those deeply held racial prejudices and racist structures in American society and, mm. and policing. And you, know, you can see how the response to any catastrophe or disasters is not independent from fractures in our society up to then. In fact, they would be more likely to, to break open those fractures, those particular aspects of our, of our society and, mm. and community. And I guess there's the whole aspect of climate change refugees as well. And that's mostly people from the global south who are seeking refuge in Europe because of the historical damage that Europeans have done to the climate and to nature. So that just seems like an extra layer of injustice in there. Yeah. And the the continued impact that Western states, companies, etc. have on states within the within the global south and their ability to mitigate or to respond to those issues as well, or, or manipulate them to their own ends. So, for example, access to kind of natural resources and relationships to dictatorial or violent states. Europe continues to send lots of weapons to Saudi Arabia. And in order to guarantee continued access to oil, yet the victims of that are overwhelmingly the Saudi people. And in terms of the link you made before between capitalism, the way it extracts from nature and treats nature as exploitative, linking that to the way that it treats other countries and peoples, such as during colonialism, Mm -hmm. that made me think of thinkers like Sven Lindquist, but he just says that racism, the idea of like these bounded different races, and the idea of racial inferiority or superiority was just created during the expansion of capitalism when European states and companies needed to branch out and go to other countries to exploit the resources there. So, so it's so interlinked, the history. It creates a kind of moral and intellectual framework to justify slavery and the, and mm. the Atlantic slave trade. I'd say it's a, it's a reflection of power relations that in unequal societies or in conditions whereby you know, a, a group of people are seeking power over another group of people, they might initially do that just through brute force, but then progress on to justifying it intellectually to themselves or to others. You wrote a book about housing in the UK and it's called The Rent Trap. What do you argue in this book? So the book largely focuses on private rented housing, so essentially it's arguing for a better regulated private rented housing sector in the UK. So a better renting would mean rent control in the UK as exists in most other parts of Western Europe, greater security of tenure so that people have a home that can't be taken off them without good cause reason, and so arguing against the kind of commodification of, of housing. And this is so linked to your work with the Race Equality Fund, right? Because people of colour are three times more likely to live in poor quality housing or in overcrowded housing. And they're so much more likely to be homeless as well. Yeah, indeed. So Shelter did some research a few years back, which showed that people of colour in the UK are more likely to fear eviction. And that was important in that context because it means they're less likely to report repairs issues and less likely to complain to their landlord about something that's not going right or is broken Mm -hmm. or something. The only group that was more fearful of their landlords were people on housing benefit um, because Mm -hmm. they feared not being able to find somewhere else to live. And that's so interesting because (laughs) there's so many links, isn't there? Because that's also links into environment the environment because if you're living in a poor area the air pollution's probably worse 
or if you're living in a damp house that's bad for your health so it's like triple collusion of different factors that mean that if you're a person of color not only will you be often in, in worse housing but your your health is more at risk yeah, yeah, you're more likely to live in overcrowded housing, and that so that has a particular impact on children who live in overcrowded housing. So they are more likely to develop experience anxiety and depression. So if you are living in a home where I've always shared a room with a sibling, there's very little space for yourself or privacy for yourself. If somebody has an impact on educational attainment as well, they're, they're not being the kind of room or space to do homework. Because mm. cooking going on, older sibling has got something happening, the younger sibling's got something happening, like is an environment which then compounds that inequality onto a further generation. There's also um, generally a, like a distrust in certain kind of types of services. So historically, black men have always had terrible experiences in the mental health system. Mm. And so why would you trust that system when black men are more likely to be heavily medicated, more likely to, likely to be subject to physical restraint, more likely to die? So there was a famous report. It was after the death of a young black man called uh, Orville Black. So he had a learning disability as well as mental health issues and you know, was detained in like a psychiatric setting. And punched the psychiatrist and was, was then like forcibly restrained and, and injected with what was an overdose of, of medication which killed him and the report was actually entitled Big Black and Dangerous because that was how he was seen and treated this kind of person with a, with huge kind of vulnerabilities it was someone with a much more kind of reduced mental age compared to how he was perceived and the response to that kind of being very dangerous. It's so interesting what you're saying about having mental health issues that are less generously dealt with also you're more likely to get them because of more difficult circumstances in general and then obviously that leads to a higher risk of homelessness i suppose yeah so it's also linked and you're just more at risk of everything and once you're homeless you're you're more at risk of suffering the consequences of temperature differences Mm -hmm. such as extreme heat in the summer and extreme cold in the winter which we're seeing more and more with climate change absolutely i don't know if you ever heard of sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia of Sickle cell disease is a, a genetic condition that is quite rare, but is largely present where it is present within people of African, Black African descent, uh, South Asian descent, and to a lesser extent, Mediterranean descent. And if you can I- imagine what it does and why it's called what it is, is that uh, the blood cells have become shaped like little sickles, so that they, they stick within the blood vessel, they don't travel through as well. And what that means in practice is when it is cold, it, the constrict and it becomes much more difficult for the blood to go through it's extremely painful people can can suffer like organ failure or bone death or death of the stroke at the extreme and what that means in practice is that people keep their homes up or kind of trying to heat up their immediate environment as much as they can because it reduces the symptoms but that has an impact on fuel poverty so if you live in a cold and leaky home you'll be spending huge amounts of money trying to keep warm but you have to kind of you know, you have to keep warm, but it's, it's kind of like a nice illustration of where a condition that affects a particular group of people who are overwhelmingly black and minority ethnic backgrounds, how better housing would mitigate the impact of that condition, but the fact that in general we live in worse housing, again, compounding mm-hmm. that inequality. Tell me about this fund that you set up. Yeah, so 
I mean, this is an idea that several of us have been talking about for a while, which was um, essentially to create a fund to support the election of people of colour as Green Party candidates that addresses a specific issue around there being relatively few people who've been elected as Green Party candidates who are people of colour. I think we've always done well around promoting gender equality, but we have struggled elsewhere not just in terms of racial diversity, but also around issues of class and of faith as well. Disability. Yes. Mm. The essential idea being to create a fund that could support some amount of election costs, could support training leadership programmes, and create the kind of dedicated resource that would enable significant change to happen. are multiple aspects to humanity, race, gender, class, sexual orientation, age, and more. These aspects cannot be separate from one another. How we experience the world and are treated within it is shaped by the overlapping aspects of our identities and various forms of oppression. To talk about race is to talk about Brexit. It's to talk about why Trump was elected. It's to talk about how we're dealing with the refugee crisis. It's to talk about the strongmen being elected, undermining democracy, human rights, and the protection of nature. To talk about race is to talk about our history, is to talk about capitalism, and is to talk about everything. Adam Ramsey explains this well. He wrote an article called My Environmentalism Will Be Intersectional or It Will Be Bullshit. He stated, The point is that if you seek to attack one power structure but do so by treading on other oppressed groups, then you are still perpetuating oppression. This is an immoral thing to do. But if you believe that injustices stem from a system, and if you therefore wish to dismantle that system, then it is also strategically foolish. The person you just stood on should have been your key ally. Our struggles are bound up together. And we can see this, even just in the word ecology. Here's Adam again. In fact, before the word intersectional was used to describe how power systems interlock, there was another term often employed to describe this web of different dynamics, ecology. When what is now the Green Party was called the Ecology Party, The point wasn't that it was in favour of trees, though it was. It was a metaphor, just as an ecosystem is an interlocking, mutually dependent complex, so too is human society. 